The Jogcast, one in a billion, with Megan Argo, Adam Avison, John Field, Stuart Harper, Leo Hookvale, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The Jogcast, May 2012 edition. Hello, I'm Adam Avison, and welcome to this month's Jogcast. With me in the studio is Leo and Libby. Hello. Hello. Now, as you may have noticed, with the massive list of names in the intro, we have an action-packed show this month because we've got the first batch of NAM interviews, as well as listener feedback and what you can see in the night sky this month. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, cool results on the origin of cosmic rays, the evolution of star formation, and searching for local dark matter. High-energy particle showers were first detected in the Earth's atmosphere in the 1930s, caused by the arrival of cosmic rays from outside the atmosphere. Such showers are triggered by the impact of particles with energies higher than 10 to the power 18 electron volts, that's a million times greater than the energies involved in particle collisions at the Large Hadron Collider. But although we know what these cosmic rays are, their origin is still somewhat uncertain. Up to now, the most likely idea was that the highest energy particles were created in gamma-ray bursts, the extremely bright but short-lived events where massive stars collapse to form black holes accelerating particles up to high velocities, and producing large numbers of weakly interacting particles known as neutrinos. But now a team of researchers have found evidence which shows that either gamma-ray bursts are not the only source of such energetic cosmic rays, or that the efficiency of the process which creates them is much lower than models predict. The new results come from IceCube, a neutrino telescope built by an international collaboration and buried deep under the Antarctic ice. Consisting of more than 5,000 sensitive detectors buried under the surface in holes drilled more than 2 kilometers deep, IceCube is designed to detect the tiny flashes of light emitted when high-energy neutrinos interact with atoms in the ice. Such interactions are rare, so IceCube has to be large. The detectors are spread throughout a volume of more than a cubic kilometer, making it the largest neutrino detector on the Earth. When a neutrino interacts with atoms in the ice, it creates a particle known as a muon, which emits a tiny amount of blue light. IceCube's detectors are sensitive to this blue light, and, by measuring the direction and intensity of this light, the research team can determine where in the sky the neutrino originated. By comparing the number and direction of neutrinos detected by IceCube with the positions of hundreds of gamma-ray bursts detected by other telescopes, the research team found that the numbers did not match. The detected neutrinos were not coming from the same place on the sky as the gamma-ray bursts. This has implications for models of the physics underlying gamma-ray bursts, since models predict a much greater flux of neutrinos than was actually detected. The other main likely source of these high-energy cosmic rays is active galactic nuclei, the supermassive black holes located at the centres of massive distant galaxies. But this may not be the full story either, since other experiments have, so far, also failed to find a match. Galaxies are made up of dust, gas and stars, and to get a full understanding of a galaxy involves observing each of these components. The total starlight from a galaxy depends on the different stars which make up that galaxy, but stars age and eventually die, and the nature of the stellar population changes over time. In a given galaxy, the number of stars of each type that we see today depends on the distribution of stars at the time the population was created, a distribution known as the initial mass function. In the very local universe, stars of different masses can simply be counted, and such surveys find that the shape of the initial mass function does not appear to change between different environments. Studying the distribution in more distant galaxies is more difficult, since, very often, we cannot see individual stars in order to count them. This distribution is a vital part of our understanding of galaxy evolution, 
but despite its importance, however, it is still uncertain if the form of this distribution is truly universal among different types of galaxy, or if it evolved over time as the universe aged. Now, in a paper published in Nature on April the 25th, a team led by Michelle Capillari of the University of Oxford have found evidence for a systematic variation in this mass function, which could have implications for our understanding of the star formation history of the universe. The group studied a sample of 260 nearby so-called early-type galaxies, those which are elliptical or lenticular in shape, and some of the oldest known objects in the nearby universe. By mapping the velocities of stars in each of the galaxies, the researchers could calculate the ratio of the amount of light produced by the stars in each galaxy, dominated by the population of massive stars, to the amount of mass within the galaxy, which is dominated by the far larger number of low-mass stars. This quantity is known as the mass-to-light ratio. By comparing the ratios calculated from the observations, with predictions from model populations of stars created using different initial mass functions, the team found a systematic difference between galaxies of different types. Low-mass stars are far more numerous than their higher-mass cousins, but this research shows that massive elliptical galaxies have a larger fraction of low-mass stars than younger spiral galaxies such as the Milky Way, and, crucially, that this difference is not due to the effects of dark matter. This result implies that there is no such thing as a universal initial mass function, which is applicable to all galaxies, but that there is, in fact, a variation with galaxy type. This could have wide-ranging implications for a variety of areas of astrophysics, since the results show that the often used assumption that the initial mass function is universal is inconsistent with galaxies in the real universe. And finally, the motions of stars in the outer regions of a galaxy can be used to measure the mass of the galaxy, but such measurements show that the outer stars move faster than they should, given the amount of visible matter that we can actually see, material in the form of gas, dust, and the stars themselves. This discrepancy is explained by the existence of dark matter, material with an as-yet unknown nature, but which is invisible to conventional telescopes. But now, a new study of the motions of stars in the vicinity of the Sun has found no evidence for dark matter in our region of the Milky Way. In the study, accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal during April, a team of astronomers in Chile used optical telescopes to map the motions of more than 400 stars within 13,000 light-years of the Sun. This is the largest survey of its kind to date, covering a volume four times larger than ever before. Using the observations, the team found that the amount of visible matter they detected matched with the amount expected from the motions of the stars, leaving no room for the existence of dark matter in our region of the galaxy. Studies of the Milky Way show that stars in the outer regions rotate faster than can be accounted for by just the visible matter, so this result suggests that the shape of the dark matter halo around the Milky Way must be very strange indeed. Thanks for that, Megan. Regular listeners of the Jogcast will know that the National Astronomy Meeting was in Manchester, and we have a lot of interviews from there, so prepare yourself for the first batch, starting with... Stuart Harper interviewing Dr Jane Birkby about Hop Jupiter's orbiting M-dwarfs. Hello, uh, this is Stuart Harper at the National Astronomy Meeting, and I've been joined by Dr. Jane Birkby, and she's from London Observatory, Netherlands, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her talk here, which was on hot Jupiters orbiting M-dwarfs. What's an M-dwarf, exactly? Okay, so I should explain. So M-dwarfs are stars, but they are stars that are smaller than the sun. They're about half the size of the sun and about half the mass and because they're much smaller they're much cooler um, about 3000 kelvin so again about half the temperature of the sun and they look red so do they form that way or are they uh, late evolutionary type stars? yeah it's just a natural outcome of star formation there's a particular reason why we want to look at m dwarfs for what i'm doing specifically 
Um, I study transits of exoplanets. And a transit is when an exoplanet passes in front of its host star, so the star that it's orbiting, mm-hmm. and that casts a shadow down on the Earth. And we measure that as a slight dimming of light. As we just watch the star over a function of time, we just see the light dip a little bit. Um, and if you have something the size of the sun and something the size of an M dwarf, so like half the size, and if you take, for example, Jupiter, when it passes in front of the smaller star, it will block more of the light, more of the disk of that star than it will do of the sun. And that will create a larger dimming of the light, and therefore they're much easier to detect. So that's why we target these little small stars, because we have much more chance of finding planets because of the bigger signals that they induce in these light curves. Um, so you could even look for Earth-sized planets around M dwarfs. Um, but I guess what's the, the target of our survey, so it's called the WIFCAM Transit Survey, and we use the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, which is located on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, up on the mountain, which I've been to, and it's lovely. Right, not bad. <laughs> um, and the, the reason we do this, we look in the infrared, because these M dwarfs are, because they're cooler than the sun, they emit more of their radiation in the infrared rather than at the optical wavelengths that we see the sun in. And so we're more sensitive to the photons coming from the star, and so we can get much more precise light curves, so our errors on what we're doing are much smaller. And the reason we study M dwarfs is because there are predictions from planet formation theory. There are two theories, and they're competing against each other. So one of them is called core accretion, mm-hmm. and the other one is called gravitational instability. Planets form in the disks that are around stars. Mm-hmm. Um, that's common to both mechanisms that I'm going to talk about. So with core accretion, what we have is all the little bits of dust that are in the disk around the star as it's forming and um, start to clump together. And as they clump together, they start gravitationally attracting all their other friends around them. Um, and that builds up this little core of solid material. So that solid material also then starts to attract gas as well. And over time, if it builds up more gas, it turns into a hot, well, it turns into a Jupiter-like object. So it has this solid core and then some gas around it. And that can take a long time. It can take about 10 million years in order to accrete enough gas to form a Jupiter-like object. Whereas in the other mechanism, this gravitational instability, what you have is rather than these little cores building up first, which is what takes the long time, you actually just have parts of the disk just fragment. And the fragments of the disk collapse down in a similar way to the way stars form, just under their own gravity, this little clump of gas and dust um, gravitationally attracts itself so that the solid material sinks to the core and you're left with a gaseous outer envelope. And so the end result is still two Jupiter-like objects. They're formed in very different ways, mm-hmm. but the time scale for the gravitational instability mechanism is much quicker. And so if we take this mechanism and translate it down to uh, planets that form around small stars, because everything is much smaller... There's less angular momentum. Everything happens more slowly. And the idea is is that if it takes a long time in core accretion to build up the cores to make the hot Jupiters, um, the time that that needs is longer than the time that the gas exists in the, du- in the disk around the star before that gas is blown out by the host star as it forms. So you need that gas because that's what sits around your, hot ju- around your Jupiter-like planets. So if core accretion is right, then what we should see when we look at M dwarfs is a lack 
of Jupiter-like planets. We shouldn't see them. We should only see tiny transits from small Earth-like and Neptune-like planets. But if uh, gravitational instability is the mechanism that we want, um, then we should find lots of hot Jupiters. And so in order to get a really strong observational constraint, I mean, that's what if you're going to really calibrate a theory, really understand your physics of what you're doing, you need um, strong observational constraints. And in order to do that, you need a huge sample of M dwarfs. Um, and they're really hard to find because they're small and they're cool, they're faint. And so you, don't, you have to look a little bit longer to find an M dwarf um, in the night sky. We have to look at large areas of the sky. And because we're looking for these transits, the probability of seeing something transit um, scales with the radius and the separation of the planet from the host star. So the smaller you go, the more stars you need to look at before you have a chance of seeing something pass directly in front of its star along your line of sight. There's much more probability that it will pass below the star or something and you just won't see it. So the, the aim of our survey is to do one of the largest MDORF surveys to date from the ground to see if we find any hot Jupiters um, around these MDORFs. And so far, out of about 4,000 MDORFs that we've looked at, we haven't found any. And okay. so, <laughs> but mate, this, is a, this is a good thing for core accretion, though, because it then That's suggests true. that, okay, perhaps that is the right mechanism. So at the moment, our survey is still ongoing, um, and we hope to complete it within the next year, depending on how good the weather is <laughs> in Monaco. Mm. I, I should explain that we're actually a backup program for the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, and that we can actually do our work in relatively poor conditions, because we're just looking for the relative change in light. And so if we manage to complete within the next year, we'll have this sample of about 10,000 M-dwarfs. Um, and with that, we should be able to place a really strong constraint on which of these two theories will which, well, yeah, is, which is supported the by the observational evidence. Um, and then, so this, at the moment, we're about level with the Kepler constraints. If you know of the Kepler spacecraft, this is excellent uh, space mission that's been returning all these uh, exoplanet transits. Um, so we hope that by the time we finish our survey, we'll be better than the current constraints from Kepler. Um, and then we will be superseded by the Palomar Transit, Transient Factory MDORF survey, who will be looking at 100,000 MDORFs. And so the more numbers you have, the tighter and tighter the constraints. If you see nothing out of 10,000, and then if you see nothing out of 100,000, you know that the existence of these hot Jupiters around MDORFs is really rare. And that points towards the core accretion yeah. method of formation. So, do you not see anything then in transits? Because if you don't see hot Jupiters, you would mention that there could be rocky planets. Yeah, but so. Do you not even see the rocky planets? For, for us, so the problem is because we're a, a ground based survey, we're limited to the precision with which we can detect the changes of light. Right. So, changes caused by a, a Jupiter, we can detect because it's quite a significant change on the order of 3 to 10%, depending on the, certain, the specific size of the star for, for these M-dwarfs. Um, whereas Earth-like planets, although um, for perhaps some of the few brightest targets in our survey, we would be able to see the tiny 1% change in flux from the star, um, the number of those in our survey is quite low. And so, like I said about the probability of something transiting, you need lots and lots of bright stars for us to be sensitive to those kind of objects. So the fact that we don't see Earth-like planets 
doesn't mean that they aren't there. In fact, we know they're there because Kepler has shown that um, small planets seem to be abundant around smaller stars. It's just the fact that our particular survey isn't sensitive to finding them. But we definitely are sensitive to hot Jupiters, and because we don't find them, then we can say something about formation theory. Right, okay. So what about specifically about your topic then? My talk here. So uh, my talk here was found in the WIFCAM Transit Survey, but it was more of a serendipitous discovery in that we don't just look at the M dwarfs in our field. We look at all the stars, and stars can be G dwarfs and K dwarfs. Um, and a K dwarf is somewhere between the size of the sun and an M dwarf. So it's about three quarters of the size of okay. the sun, about that. Um, and what we found uh, was a hot Jupiter, but it orbits its star in just one day, like whizzing around in one day. And the existence of these really close-in, really hot Jupiters, I mean, they're really close to the host star, so they're being highly irradiated. And what happens to that is it bloats the planet, it puffs it up bigger. So uh, the object we found is about um, 30% fatter than Jupiter actually is. Um, But it's only got the mass of Jupiter. And so there's something in it that's causing it to puff up. And this is another area of, um, like, cutting-edge exoplanet research is that why does this happen it's not clear why which specific mechanism would cause that to happen for us what's interesting about this object is that because it's so close there's really not much time left if you take current theory before it hits the host star so in terms of if you think along to cosmic time scales um based on current theory we expect this planet to hit um the star in 25 million years which ah, right, yeah, so cosmically, not that. Yeah, and so what we think is that one of the parameters, the, the efficiency of this um, decay of the orbit, so the efficiency of how fast it moves in, um, the current parameters that describe that um, aren't quite right, and indeed there is a growing evidence to show that that's, there's something not quite right there, and it's to do with the actual internal structure of the star, we think. Um, stars of different mass are different inside um, some of them have regions that where photons radiate out yeah. and other regions they have convection layers and depending on how much convection there is and how much radiation is will change how fast the orbit of the planet falls into the host star Could that explain then why you're not seeing them in, your, in the smaller M dwarfs? I mean... The actual, so Jupiters have to form further away from the star where ices can condense. Um, But then there's this theory of um, migration and that these Jupiters do come in, um, so they fall much further out, like where Jupiter is around in our own solar system. Mm -hmm. But these hot Jupiters have come in much closer and they're within the orbit of Mercury. That's how close they are. Um, So how they get there, there's um, different theories on how giant planets actually move in. But at some point, there must be something that kind of stops that happening as well. Mm -hmm. And again, this is another unknown area of um, exoplanet research at the moment. What, what exactly is it that um, tells you that it is falling in? How, how do you measure that if you're only doing a transit going once across? So it transits its uh, star uh, yeah. every 1.01 days. All right, so fairly fast. Then. Yeah, and so the amount of time it takes to actually cross in front of the star is... I calculated this the other day. It was one, it's basically <laughs> one and a half hours, oh, right. most exactly. So you see it transit for one and a half hours and then it disappears for the rest of the day <laughs> and then it comes back again. Okay. Um, so that's, so what we do is we do repeat observations. Like I said, we've been observing for nearly five years now. Um, and over time, you build up your light curve. 
And what you do is you try all these different orbital periods and you take your data and you fold it around on itself. And if you get the correct orbital period, you see your flat line and you see this nice sort of, a, imagine an upside down top hat. And that's, right. that's what we see in our data. So, yeah, thank you very much for speaking with us, yeah. and um, goodbye. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that, Stuart. Now, Mark interviews Dr Nick Cross from the University of Edinburgh about a billion star image of the Milky Way, which you may have seen in the news last month. Um, I've just very quickly grabbed uh, Nick Cross, who, uh, rather excitingly, has been trending at number one on the BBC News website today, and he works at the University of Edinburgh. So can yes. you tell us about what that news story that broke was? So we've produced an image um, of the Milky Way galaxy in the near-infrared, and this uh, covers the plane and part of a bulge, and it has uh, one billion stars within the image. The image is very high resolution, it's 150 billion pixels. 150 gigapixel yeah. image, that's oh, a good 10,000 times more than a camera these days normally. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, certainly that. Uh, it's uh, made up of uh, thousands of images from the UKIRT and Vista telescopes. So UKIRT's in the Northern Hemisphere in Hawaii, um, and it has a wide field camera, uh, and it's been taking uh, surveys for UKIRT's uh, U- infrared deep sky surveys for the last seven years. Um, and one of the surveys is the Galactic Plane Survey. And on the right-hand side of the image, you have data from the Galactic Plane Survey. On the left-hand side is data from the Vista Telescope. Um, and that's been taking data in some hemisphere for the last two years. It's uh, taking uh, data in the Vista Variables and Vialectia, which is a variability survey in Galactic Plane Bulge. And we combined the data from these two, two surveys to produce this big image. And this image is very useful for finding uh, clusters of stars, which are, uh, you have a slight over-density of stars, but it's against a very dense background of the stars. So finding it uh, through an archive is, is not easy, um, and uh, it helps to be able to com- compare to the image to check to see if other algorithms are working correctly. Also, nebulae, um, again, are very difficult to find automatically in archive. And we have produced large catalogues for survey teams and also uh, for the rest of the astronomy community to uh, access and to uh, find rare objects in, to uh, download the data they need. These surveys produce billions of unique detections, so downloading whole databases um, can be very difficult. Um, for transfer t- time uh, can be weeks or months even for a very fast connection so um, by having a searchable d- database you go for exactly the uh, data you need so you can find rare objects like Redshift 7 uh, quasars uh, for first Redshift 7 quasar was discovered in the UKID's Large Angular Survey uh, last year and three more uh, uh, between uh, Redshift 6.5 and uh, 7 have been discovered in the Vista Viking data in, in uh, over the last few months. So it's not just stuff in the Milky Way then? It's Some not just stuff in the Milky Way. We, we, much we, further. No, um, the Milky Way ma- uh, makes a, a beautiful press release and uh, certainly it's one more challenging service because of density stars, but both Vista and uh, UKIDS have a whole range of surveys. There's, um, in both of them there's a wedding cake uh, set of extragalactic surveys going from very deep pointing to quite a large angular survey. In the case of Vista, it's a hemisphere survey. Uh, uh, and uh, in both cases, there are uh, uh, other surveys of uh, the Milky Way 
um, all uh, clusters. Um, so we've, there's Galactic Cluster Survey in UKIT and there's Imaginary Cloud Survey in, in Vista. Um, some of these surveys, particularly Vista ones, um, are looking for uh, variability. So uh, there are many epochs. Uh, Vista's the fastest infrared telescope um, built. It has a uh, one square degree field of view, a little bit more, 1.5. Uh, so do you mean it's not just a snapshot, but you're actually doing a sort of a, a yes. movie, if you like? Well, Vista variables, um, over the next five years, uh, it will take 100 epochs over a whole... Uh, of, well, over 500 square degrees of galactic uh, plane and bulge. And this will look for pulsating variables, RL, Lyries, Cepheids, uh, which are very good distance indicators. So we're to measure for distances to different structures in the Milky Way. So through the whole bulge, uh, through bar, uh, you, uh, unlike optical surveys, which uh, light gets blocked by dust, we would see all the way f- through to the far side of the bulge, uh, into the disk on the other side. There's a Gaia mission coming up in a few years' time, which also measure distances to large numbers of stars from Milky Way um, using parallax method. But uh, it won't be able to penetrate in, into the bulge. So in that's the, same the way. real advance of using infrared. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, for detectors, are a lot more expensive. So for um, cameras, are not quite as big as some of the optical cameras like PanStars. Um, but uh, they it's beginning to get there, um, and uh, they're. Right now, the UK is leading the way. Both uh, WIFCAM was the fastest survey up till a couple of years ago, and now it's been overtaken by Vista. Both these uh, telescopes and instruments were uh, designed and built in the UK, and most of the um, science team has come from the UK, although um, the data is uh, available to people throughout the, um, from the European community. And now, um, uh, at this meeting, we're doing uh, first public releases from Vista. So it would be available to astronomers from around the world, or at least a, a, a part of the data. Uh, there's still some there's some data which is still proprietary to the Vista teams, and uh, uh, they will always have a, a small advantage of six to twelve months. So it's a picture that's going to take quite a lot, a lot of people, quite a long time to to get through. Then. Oh yes, I mean you can spend hours looking through it. I mean I can look at little bits here and there, but so much more, which. I, to explore. What seems really interesting is it's not just a, then a flat picture, but you're talking about, if you're talking about distance, you're ultimately getting a three-dimensional picture, and you're also introducing yes. the time dimension as well. Yes, um, um, it won't be a three-dimensional picture for all the stars, uh, not all of them you risk get distances to, although um, you may be able to work out a, be- a, a better estimate of distances to, to most of them. Uh, there'd be better extinction maps. I mean, understanding the amount of dust extinction through Milky Way is uh, uh, very difficult to estimate. So all this will come out of uh, these Vista variability survey. Um, and as I say, it's just one of uh, six surveys on, on Vista, and uh, a, a lot of great science is going to come out of all the rest too. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for the interview. It's no problem at all. Thanks for that, Mark. So Christina was very busy during NAM, and in the first of her two interviews for this show, she talks to Phil Bull, talking about cosmology and dark energy. Hello, today I'm here with Phil Bull, uh, who's a PhD student at Oxford University, and also did his undergraduate here at Manchester. Hi Phil. Hi, it's <laughs> good to be back. And welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you. Phil is giving a talk later today on cosmology. Um, can you just explain about your project a little bit more? Yeah, sure. On? So uh, I'm interested in this thing called dark energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Over the last uh, decade or two, 
Uh, astronomers have discovered that uh, the expansion of the universe seems to be heading faster and faster and faster, so it's accelerating. And uh, this is something we call the, the dark energy problem. Um, and this is a bit weird, because normally gravity, just plain old gravity, should make mm-hmm. things well, decelerate, so yeah. not, not expand faster and faster. So there's something weird going on. And actually, when you do the sums, it looks like uh, something... This something that's making the universe accelerate makes up about 75% of the universe. So we don't know what 75% of the universe is made of. Um, So there are lots of explanations for what this dark energy stuff could be or what these observations could mean Mm -hmm. uh, from things like um, the contribution of quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. to the expansion of the universe. So uh, quantum mechanics predicts that little subatomic particles are popping in and out of existence all of the time. Uh, just in the blink of an eye. Are these um, things like electrons? Or? Yep, electrons, protons, very, very briefly, mm-hmm. almost imperceptibly, um, but it's a definite prediction of quantum mechanics. And that adds a small amount of energy to the universe, and so maybe it's that. Uh, but as well as that, there are uh, suggestions that perhaps we've got gravity wrong. We've uh, Just as uh, Einstein's general relativity came along and corrected Newton's theory of gravity... Well, maybe now, a century later, uh, maybe we need to make some small corrections to Einstein's theory, and these are called modified gravity theories, very imaginative. (laughs) Uh, But I don't work on either of those myself. Uh, I'm more interested in in questioning the assumptions behind how we interpret the observations that suggest that the universe is accelerating. So what we normally do is um, assume that the universe is perfectly homogeneous, I mean, so completely smooth. Completely smooth, no lumps, no bumps. No galaxies. Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> Which you might think for astrophysicists is quite a weird <laughs> assumption to make, that there are no galaxies even. Um, but, well, it seems to work. We, we have a very good description of the universe. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes lots of very successful predictions, apart from this dark energy thing. We just don't know what it is. So I'm one of the people uh, looking at whether whether maybe that's not a great assumption to make. Maybe on really big scales, um, so much bigger than galaxies or even clusters of galaxies, mm-hmm. the universe is still quite lumpy. So uh, we want to find out if it is or not. And if it is, what effect that has on this dark energy problem. So uh, we observe these things called Type 1A supernova mm-hmm. explosions. And uh, they they seem to be dimmer than we expect. This is how we we figure out that the universe seems to be accelerating. But you can get similar sort of dimming effects if, for example, uh, we live in a bubble. So uh, that's a bit of a crazy idea, and uh, it's actually something we just call a toy model. So it's it's just a very simple model we use to try and figure out what some of the key effects of uh, lumps and bumps in the universe are in homogeneity. And uh, so I've recently been working on these, uh, we call them giant void models rather than bubble models. So that's um, where there's, there's large gaps in the universe, basically. Uh, essentially, yeah. So, I mean, the simplest model is something called a Lemaitre-Tolman-Bondi model. <laughs> um, and essentially, we live at the centre of a bubble mm-hmm. in this model. Um, and so near to us, there aren't many galaxies, and far away, there are many more galaxies. And when you do the sums, which is what I do all day... <laughs> Um, you find that, lo and behold, you can explain 
the, these supernova observations. You can explain this dimming of the supernovae um, just with this bubble model without any dark energy, which so, is quite surprising. So there's there could be other reasons for it entirely, like this bubble model. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And so um, these observations don't necessarily mean that we don't know what 75% of the universe is. We might have just made a bad assumption, maybe. But we're scientists, right? We have to test things. So uh, I can't just sit here and say, we live in the centre of a bubble, and that's that. (laughs) It explains everything, because it doesn't, of course. Mm. Um, And so what I did in August last year um, with my supervisors, Tim Clifton and Pedro Ferreira, both currently at Oxford, uh, we we looked at these Lemaitre-Tolman-Bondi models and uh, we applied other observational tests to mm-hmm. them. Uh, so I won't go into too many details <laughs> on just what those are uh, because there's a whole battery of okay. tests that we applied. But it turns out that when you confront these models with all of the observational data, they don't stand up to scrutiny. Okay. So we've, we've ruled them out. They're, they're not a valid model of the universe anymore. They don't match the data. But for a while, they were viable. <laughs> And uh, that's that's kind of an interesting thing, and it's something we're continuing to pursue. Okay. And lots of people around the world as well, of course. And that's do all the lumps and bumps that the universe is made up of, all the galaxies, all the inhomogeneities. What effect do they do? Uh, what what effect do they have on our supernova observations okay. and, and the like? And does that mean we've incorrectly? estimated how much dark energy there is something along those lines and the, the, the thing is we don't know yet <laughs> so there's um, still a lot of stuff still, still to be done s- still a lot of su- stuff to be done uh, in my opinion at least <laughs> alright well thank you very much for stopping to talk to us oh, my pleasure thank you and in her second interview Christina is going to talk to John Tanner and Dr Dan Brown about their campaign to raise public awareness of light pollution in the Peak District Joining me today is John Tanner from the Peak District National Park and Dr. Dan Brown from Nottingham Trent University. Hi guys and thanks for joining us on the Jobcast. You guys gave a talk earlier today in the outreach session about dark skies. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, we presented the outcomes of a project we got funded by STFC for trying to raise awareness of dark sky pollution and light pollution in general in the Peak District. So we were just presenting some of the outcomes and some of the activities that we've done from this project. Okay. How was, how was the data obtained? Is it sort of done through analysis of stars in the sky? or It is not actually assessing how light-polluted it is. It's more about trying to assess how well we've managed to transfer the message of being aware of light pollution. And we've done several small-scale activities, and we had questionnaires and did small interviews and asked the participants what they thought of that and that's one way of assessing how well they worked and these were a lot of small-scale activities that we did we included some guided tours and walks onto a site and there's one good example of nine ladies i think yeah that's right the um nine ladies stone circle is a um it's a stone circle that's thought to, thought to be about four thousand six thousand years old yeah. in the heart of the, uh, the big district national park and as part of this project, we, we ran a series of events at Stanton in the Peak, which is where the Nine Ladies Stone Circle is, where we invited the public to come along to an inflatable planetarium session, okay. which sent a message not only about uh, the night sky in the months that the events were run, but also about the detrimental impacts of light pollution. 
we then took the members of the public on a walk up to the Nine Lady Stone Circle to explain how light pollution has a detrimental impact on our cultural heritage. The people who would have put the stone circle in place would almost certainly have experienced a darker sky and certainly the night sky would have influenced them culturally. So we had about 150 people over two events at the Nine Lady Stone Circle. Very atmospheric. If you can picture a small version of Stonehenge, a very small version (laughs) of Stonehenge, with the mist rolling in, church bells tolling in the background and tawny owls hooting. It was a superb event. In total, we engaged about four or 500 people throughout the events that we ran. And as Dan said, this was all part of a SDFC-funded project on promoting awareness of light pollution in and around the National Park. It's quite, quite a good representation that one person described the experience as magical. So we've not only managed to inform people on the site about light pollution, but we managed to make light pollution and dark skies relevant for them and link an emotional response to what they then see, what light pollution does to a site. And one key message was linking heritage with light pollution. And essentially, if you don't look after light pollution and you put more and more lights up, it is as if you take a bulldozer running through Stonehenge and everybody would cry out loudly if you wanted to do that. And in this case, we're trying to say, well, hey, guys, if you illuminate your local Asda shop, then that's causing exactly the same effect in your surroundings. It's probably worth mentioning that the National Park itself is a protected landscape. It's not in national public ownership. It's, a, it's made up of a lot of privately owned land. But the National Park Authority has a legal responsibility to protect the area. And one of the areas that we have to protect within the National Park is the dark skies. So we actually are legally accountable to protect the night sky. So this series of events was going in some way to meeting the responsibility of national parks to protect night skies, but also to promote the national park as a destination to come for astronomy and night tourism. About a third of the population of the United Kingdom, excluding Northern Ireland, live within about an hour of the national park. So you're talking 16 to 20 million people large number. Exactly. So it's essentially a rural island surrounded by a sea of um, urbanity, really. Very accessible, and yet some of the uh, the most pristine skies in the United Kingdom are, st- are still available. So it's great for astronomers, and really, really handy for Jodrell Bank and Manchester as well. Yeah, definitely. Are there any more of these events going on like in the future? Are there any more planned? We're planning to run a series of events in the near future, hopefully in partnership with Dark Sky Discovery, which you may be familiar with, which is another SDFC-guided project uh, run in partnership with Natural England. Funding for that is uncertain at the moment, but certainly we hope that it will become accessible in the future. We have already some sites that are already developed. We've got a site at Surprise View, where you've got a fantastic view over the landscape and have really nice dark sky as well and that's something that's remaining there more or less permanently now for visitors that drive into the Peak District to stop by and see what they can uh, observe of the night sky and there's a seasonal information chart with constellations with partial images or plank images of astronomical objects and showing the general public where they can observe it. But, it, but in terms of more events, it's almost certain that we will be running events throughout the year. 
one event that we've got, we've, we've got definitely in the calendar at the moment is towards the end of October, and that's the second Peak District Star Party. So that's where we're inviting people in, into the Peak District to come and experience some dark skies, set up a telescope if you've got one, use one if you haven't, also experience some great talks by local and also nationally important astronomers and really get to experience the night sky. So there's more information about that on the, the National Park website, but you can also do a search for Peak Star Party as well. Um, if you look on the National Park website, you'll find out more information about events that we'll be running throughout the year. But certainly what we've run so far isn't the end. This is We're in this for the long term. OK, and we'll definitely we'll link to everything in the show notes. We'll put links to that. Excellent. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about your particular project that you're promoting today? Um, well, part of... This is kind of another thing, isn't it? Yeah, part of my work is also looking at specific examples of the heritage, one of which is a standing stone in on Garden's Edge, which is a landscape rich in heritage and sort of ideal for our work because it's also a dark area. And this standing stone is also late Stone Age, early Bronze Age, and has a possible astronomical alignment there and it seems that one side will be seasonally illuminated depending on where the sun is and one side will be only illuminated at midsummer completely so this is a quite interesting astronomy link so you can use a landscape and a monument to learn more about astronomy and that's something i've presented here as well which fits quite nicely into our overarching project of astronomy in the park and trying to link heritage astronomy and science understanding in general Okay, that's really, really interesting. So, thank you very much for talking to me, guys. Okay, nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for those interviews, Christina. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those things that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends section. So, last Tuesday, as we record this, the Space Shuttle Discovery flew for the last time, but not in a space mission. It was strapped to the back of a Boeing 747 and left the Kennedy Space Center in Florida for a an effective lap of honour of the US, heading up to the uh, Washington Mall, uh, where it did a few tours, and there's some nice footage of it flying over things like the White House and the Washington Monument, which are really spectacular. You can see how small the shuttle is, but also how big a Boeing 747 is. So this is the last, or the second to last mission of Discovery. It first blasted off in August 1984, and its final mission is to be in the National Air and Space Museum in Virginia. If you ever wondered what it's like to be an astronaut, you can go to this museum and sit in the cockpit of Discovery and you can pretend to, like, press all the buttons and be in control. Can you imagine it? I've just seen pictures of the cockpit and how many buttons there are. I just wonder how they actually controlled it all. How do you know which one to press in the emergency and locate it? It's like... When you're looking on your remote control for the right button, but the number of buttons in this cockpit, that must involve some <laughs> intense training. Well, if it's any, anything like Hollywood, normally the button you need to press is the one that's flashing. <laughs> I wonder if they do flash. Maybe we should go there and find <laughs> out. So my odd this week is about the ESA astronaut, Timothy Peake, who is soon going to go to an underwater base to learn what it's like to work in a space station and do space missions. So he's going to the NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations, called NEMO, which is a an underwater base just off the coast of Florida, which is designed to train astronauts for working in extreme environments. And so during their 10-day stay, he's going to be an aquanaut rather than an astronaut. 
and they're going to do water walks, which are sort of to simulate spacewalks. So they've kind of got this almost weightlessness. The main aim of this thing is to train them in environments where they haven't got a quick exit. So they're going to have to depressurize carefully and things. So they can't just get out of the, the base if something goes wrong. So they have to really work together quite well as a team when these astronauts go down there. Tim Peake is one of the several astronauts who are in training with ESA at the moment. Uh, ESA did a selection for their new astronaut corps in about 2009. They're all undergoing their training at the moment in readiness to go to space. And apparently there's a sort of exchange going on. So some NASA astronauts are going to go and train with ESA doing cave training. (laughs) (laughs) So um, apparently this uh, training is geared towards working on asteroids or something. So I think they're probably going to be learning how to kind of work in asteroids or that kind of environment. So that could be quite interesting. And uh, if you want to follow Tim Peake in his training, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at astro underscore Tim Peake. That's P-E-A-K-E. And if you want to follow all the ESA astronauts, there's a blog on the ESA website. If you go to blogs.esa.int forward slash astronauts, uh, you can follow their progress. And we'll link to them in the show notes. Following on from astronauts on asteroids, we have... um new company being set up in the last few days by James Cameron of Titanic and Avatar fame, as well as Google chief executives Larry Page and Eric Schmidt, who are creating a company to mine asteroids, um, probably near-Earth asteroids, actually. And the plan is to go to the asteroid, mine it for all the rare materials, including gold, platinum, titanium, cobalt, and then bring that back to Earth and use those resources that you can get from the asteroids to do this. So we're starting at the very first stage of private companies exploring space and getting involved in that. So we've got the people sending um, uh, space tourists up, and now we've got our first sort of mining company. Very cool. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is amazing. But there is some problems with this. This this is a very long-term goal of the company. There's an upcoming NASA mission, which is costing around 1 billion US dollars, which is going to go to an asteroid, and it's going to mine the material, and it's only going to return around 60 grams to Earth, and 60 grams of material is nowhere near enough to cover the 1 billion uh, (laughs) dollars. So while you're going to get lots of interesting science from it, it's not very commercially viable at the moment. So this company is going to involve finding cost-effective ways to mine these asteroids and there will be lots of new technology being developed and it's a very, very exciting time. It is kind of like living in science fiction world when we start mining asteroids and commercial space flights is, is, is the first step to that. It's very, very interesting. So an asteroid around a mile in diameter... If they combine it all for the resources, you could bring back around 20 trillion US dollars at the moment. This will obviously go up as resources become rarer. Um, so in long-term times, it's actually very... It'd be quite a good idea. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but getting the technology to do it is going to be the key. And they're initially going to start off putting um, observatories in, in around Earth um, to look at all the asteroids and start uh, looking at all the spectra. And from the spectrum, you can work out what type of material the asteroids are composed of so they can target where to send their missions in the future. And also, this is an interesting one, they plan to create a fuel depot in space by 2020, which seems very, very, very soon. And what they're going to do is try and use water from the asteroids to create rocket fuel. And then that can also go into 
an Earth orbit for refueling of commercial satellites and a spacecraft. So this sounds like they've got an entire thing. So they're going to get a petrol station up there. <laughs> you're going to get your, your observatories. You're going to get your mining company. It's going to be a whole new ball game. And it's going to be like exploring, I guess, the American Wild West when the gold rush. <laughs> but now the space rush. And it, it's, it's that exciting. How cool is this? So observatories looking at minerals in space. That's what you do, right? Yeah. This is, this, this is another reason so, why I'm very excited. So come in 2030 or something, Libby Jones, space miner. <laughs> oh, I wonder if I get a hard hat as well as a lab coat. Yeah, like a, a an astronaut's uh, helmet, but with a hard hat on top. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I, I do involve um, I'm involved in looking at minerals around dying stars and working out what sort of um, they produce. And this is where all these minerals actually come from. And then they form an asteroids. So this is very very similar, but close to home. And then for a commercial purpose. Oh, maybe I should set up my own company. <laughs> I can't make it to the diamond planet, but maybe we could get, get it to the asteroids. <laughs> now, to a man whose asteroid we hope doesn't get mined to non-existence, it's Ian Morrison with the Northern Night Sky. Well, the night sky in May. Of course, the nights are getting shorter, and really you've got to wait till perhaps 10 o'clock to have a really dark sky. But if you do so, looking towards the southwest, you'll see that rather lovely constellation Leo, looking like one of the lions in Trafalgar Square. And just below, there's an interloper we'll come to later, which is Mars. Coming down a little bit towards the south, we have the constellation of Virgo. Its brightest star is Spica. And about five degrees away, as we shall see, is the planet Saturn. So that's two planets to look at during the month. If we move over from Leo towards the east, we pass through what's called the realm of the galaxies, it's where the heart of the Virgo cluster lies, and a small telescope will show quite a number of them. Then you come to a bright star called Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. Just beyond that is a little circlet of stars called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. And then we come to Hercules. The four brightest stars make up what is called the keystone. And if with binoculars or a small telescope you work two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the keystone, you should see a little fuzzy object. That's the loveliest globular cluster called M13 that we can see in the northern sky. And then rising over towards the east, we have the start of a lovely part of the heavens, the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra, and also Aquila. And the brightest star you'll see first is Vega in Lyra. Low on the horizon, a bit towards the north, at that time will be Cygnus the Swan with its brightest star, Deneb. But as the night progresses, they'll rise higher in the sky as well. It's also a very good time to look at Ursa Major, if you don't mind, mind cricking your neck, because it's almost overhead. The plough is the most obvious part. If you look at the three stars that make up the handle of the plough, or sometimes called the Big Dipper, you might, even with your unaided eye, see it's actually a double star. They're called Alcor and Mizar, Mizar being the brighter. But with a small telescope, looking at Mizar, you'll see it's a double star as well. So it's a very nice little lollipop to look at in the sky. So let's have a look at the, the planets this month. Well, we're not going to see Jupiter. It passes behind the Sun on May the 13th. It's called Superior Conjunction. It would just be visible at the very end of May when it rises just 45 minutes before dawn. And you might, if you try very hard, glimpse it with binoculars just above the eastern horizon. But to be honest, really, you need to wait a couple more months to see it well in the morning sky. 
Saturn will come back to in the highlights, but that reached opposition due south at about midnight on April the 15th. So, in fact, it's now visible quite well in the evening sky. And it's about 25 degrees above the eastern horizon after sunset and is in the south about midnight British summer time. It then has an elevation of some 33 degrees and it's, as I said, just about 5 degrees up and to the left of the first magnitude star spiker. It's moving westwards across the sky in what we call retrograde motion through the constellation of Virgo. As it does so, its magnitude drops from plus 0.3 to plus 0.5. And at the same time, of course, its angular size falls from about 19 to 18.4 arc seconds. As I've said before, sadly, in contrast to Jupiter, which is quite high in the ecliptic and hence high above our horizon, Saturn's heading to the more southerly parts of the ecliptic, so for quite some considerable time will not be seen that high up. However, nicely, the rings are opening out they're now about 13 degrees to the line of sight. So, in fact, Saturn is appreciably brighter than we saw during the last apparition. With a small telescope on the night of good seeing, you should easily spot what is called Cassini's division within the ring system. And given a scope with an aperture of 6 inches or greater, you might even spot Encke's division in the outer ring and also, perhaps, the inner elusive sea ring or crate ring, as it's sometimes called. Well, Mercury is another planet we don't really see this month. It's barely visible, low above the eastern horizon, as May begins, and might be just glimpsed with binoculars five degrees above the horizon at sunrise, shining at magnitude zero. And it rapidly disappears from view before it reaches superior conjunction, lying behind the sun on the 27th of May. Well, I mentioned Mars earlier. It's lying below the body of Leo, the lion. And it's still, at the beginning of May, some 60 degrees above the western horizon an hour after sunset. It's now moving away from us, so its magnitude is fading from minus 0.1 to plus 0.5 during the month as it moves westwards, increasing its distance from Regulus, the brightest star in Leo, from about 6 to 15 degrees. Now, at the same time, of course, its angular size is shrinking. It starts the month at about 10 arc seconds, but that drops to 8 arc seconds. So it's not so easy to see any details, but given a night of good seeing, it might just be possible to see some markings on the surface. Well, you can have hardly failed to spot Venus, which is still dominating the southwestern sky after sunset. In fact, it starts the month some 39 degrees away from the sun, and at sunset is still 34 degrees above the horizon. And that's about as high as it ever gets, actually. As May begins, it's also at its brightest, magnitude minus 4.7. And on April the 30th, just at the very end of the previous month, April, it achieved what's called its greatest illuminated extent, which is the largest apparent illuminated area, having a disk 30 arc seconds across, which is 27% illuminated. Now, as Venus moves towards the Earth quite rapidly now, its apparent angular size increases to 57 arc seconds. It will only have an elevation then, sadly, of 6 to 7 degrees at sunset. But in the last week of May, the thin crescent should easily be visible in binoculars, and it is said that keen-eyed observers may even spot this with their unaided eye. So why not give that a try? And I might just uh, give you warning that as Venus passes what is called inferior conjunction, that's closest to the Earth, on the 6th of June, it passes right in front of the Sun the second and the last Venus transit this century. 
but sadly, the UK is not the best place to see it. But more of that next month. So what about the highlights for May? Well, as I've already said, Saturn is at its best in the evening now, and that's well worth having a look at. It takes Saturn about 29.4 years to complete one orbit, and during one half, we see the northern hemisphere best, and that's due to the tilt of the rotation axis, and for the other half, we see the southern hemisphere. So following the time when we saw the rings edge on a year or so ago, we're now seeing the northern hemisphere. And though they're not as prominent as those seen in Jupiter's atmosphere, there are belts and zones which can be seen. The belts are thought to be warmer gases low down in the atmosphere, whilst the brighter zones may well be ice crystals and clouds in the upper, colder atmosphere. If it's really dark, and you've got an 8-inch or so telescope, there's some chance you might pick out several of the moons. A small telescope will easily show the largest moon Titan, but given an 8-inch telescope and a really dark night around new moon, good chance to see several others. Now, we have something quite special on May the 5th and 6th. It's called a supermoon. And the point is this. It's at a time when the full moon corresponds to what is called perigee, when the moon is actually closest to us at the time it is full. This happens reasonably often, and it wasn't that long ago when it was sort of highlighted in the press and the television. And they said quite incorrectly, that this was when the moon was closest to the Earth for a very, very long time. It obviously gets close to the Earth once every month as it goes around its elliptical orbit. But you get a supermoon, or a megamoon as some call it, when it's actually very close to full at the time of perigee. Now, on the 5th and 6th of May, perigee corresponds very, very closely with the full moon. At transit, seen from the UK, it will be about 354,600 kilometres away from us. And that is the smallest distance since 1912 in January. So for about 100 years, just over. The effect of the elliptical orbit is that the apparent diameter of the moon varies by about 12%. And that actually means that the size, the apparent area, changes by about 30%. So when you see a full moon close to Aperture, it really does look quite big. That is really quite a difference. So try and have a look, perhaps, as it rises on the evening of the 5th of May, if it's clear, at about 8.15 BST. And, of course, we all know that near the horizon, the moon looks very, very big. It's called the moon illusion. Um, the cause of that illusion is disputed, but the particular explanation that I like, and many believe as well, is due to the fact that we perceive the sky above us as forming a flattened rather than a hemispherical dome. We thus believe that objects near the horizon are further away from us, and our minds tend to make them appear larger than when we believe, in quotes, that we're seeing them closer to us, as of course the moon would be when we see it high in the sky. That might be well worth looking at. I mentioned the moons of Saturn. The 20th of April is quite a good night to have a look because uh, there's quite a nice tight grouping around Saturn and it's around the time of new moon. Even the smallest telescopes will show ninth magnitude Titan. Now, on the morning of May the 6th, after that supermoon, there is in fact a meteor shower. It's called the Eta Aquarids, and that's because they come from the constellation Aquarius. However, because of course it's very close to full moon, even though that will now in fact be on the far side of the sky, you're not going to see all that many. There might be typically 25 meteors per hour, 
but you'd only tend to see the brighter ones. And the best time really to have a look is just in the hour or so before dawn, because at that time the moon will be furthest over on the opposite side of the sky its effect will be least. It's believed that the Eta Aquarids result from dust particles that were released from Comet Halley in an eruption as it neared the sun some 4,000 years ago. And I'm slightly amazed they can find that out. So that's May the 6th in the morning if you can stay up or get up early. Two more. May the 22nd, you have a chance of seeing two very thin crescents, Venus and a nearby new moon. Now, we can always see, if it's clear, a very thin crescent moon. You don't often see it when just above is the planet Venus, which is also very, very close to being, in effect, new and has a very thin crescent. So that's worth having a look at, May the 22nd. On the 26th of May, the waxing crescent moon passes over the position of the open cluster M67 in the constellation of Cancer the Crab. Now, the nicest thing to see is when the stars disappear behind the dark limb of the moon. Sadly, it'll still be quite bright then. But you should, at about 11pm or just before, be able to see them appear behind the lit side of the moon. That should be quite a nice thing to have a look at, and binoculars or a small telescope are what you really need. So there are some nice things to look for in May. I know the nights are not as long, but I hope you get some good observing. Thanks for that, Ian. And now, here's John Field with what you can see in the southern night sky. Kia ora and welcome to the May broadcast from Carpenter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. May sees Orion the Hunter low in the western evening sky below Sirius. Sirius Takarua is the brightest star in our night sky. Sirius marks the head of one of the two dogs following the hunter down in the sky. Sirius is only the brightest star because it is nearby at 8.7 light years away. Sirius is often known as the dog star, as it is the brightest star in Canis Major, the large dog. Sirius being so bright often twinkles like a diamond when close to the horizon, as the air currents break up its light into separate colours. The second smaller dog is below Sirius and is marked by Procyon. Orion is upside down and low in the west in our southern hemisphere view. A line of three bright stars forms his belt. A fainter line of stars and above to the left of the belt form his sword. To most southern hemisphere sky watchers, the belt and sword form the pot, or the saucepan, now tilted on its side. Mari called these three stars Tautoru. In the sword of Orion, we find a hazy star marking the Orion Nebula. Visible to the unaided eye is a haze, and in binoculars there is a misty glow around the middle star. It is a vast cloud of dust and gas about 1,300 light years away. Ultraviolet light from a massive, extremely hot star in the cloud is causing it to glow. Stars are still forming in a giant cloud that sits behind the glowing nebula. In early June, Orion can be seen both in the west at dusk and in the east at dawn. To the right of Orion are two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, marking the head of the twins, Gemini. In the south, we find Crux, a southern cross, and the two pointers Alpha and Beta Centauri, high overhead. Running between Crux and Sirius along the path of the Milky Way are the constellations of Carina the Keel and Vela the Sails. These two constellations once part of the great ship Argo. This region is home to a large number of bright stars, star clusters and nebulae that can be easily viewed with the unaided eye, binoculars or telescope. The Eta Carina Nebula is a bright nebula that covers an area of the sky four times larger than the Orion Nebula. Although bright at magnitude 1, this nebula tends to blend in with the glow of the Milky Way, whilst the Orion Nebula stands out due to its dark background sky, and many people are more familiar with Orion. 
Sweeping around Eta Carina with binoculars will reveal several star clusters along with glowing clouds of gas and dust that are traced with dark lanes. Scorpius and Sagittarius can be seen rising in the east after sunset. These two constellations cross the widest and brightest region of the Milky Way, and this provides a stunning sight when viewed from a dark location. By late evening, this area is well above our horizon and is host to a number of beautiful and interesting objects. To the west of Antares, the brightest star in Scorpius is a globular cluster known as M4. Visible in good binoculars, it has been seen by some observers with the unaided eye from a dark sky location. A 4-inch or greater telescope will reveal individual stars in this cluster along with some curved loops and streams of stars. Four degrees northwest of Antares is another globular cluster, M80. Visible in small telescopes as a hazy ball, larger telescopes reveal it as a dense cluster of stars. Near to the scorpion's tail are two bright star clusters called M6 and M7. Both clusters are visible to the human eyes of bright glow in the Milky Way. Binoculars will reveal individual stars in the cluster. M6 is known as a butterfly cluster due to its resemblance to a butterfly with outstretched wings. M7 is the southernmost of the Messier objects and is a spectacular sight in binoculars and wide-field telescopes. This cluster is between 800 and 1,000 light years away, and about 80 stars can be seen in a small telescope. During late April and early May, there is a bright meteor shower, the Eta Acrids. This shower is associated with material left behind by Comet Halley. The shower can produce up to 60 meteors per hour. Unfortunately, the peak on the 5th of May is one day before the full moon, and this will severely impact on the number of meteors we'll be able to observe. The radiant will rise in the northeast after midnight, and by 3 a.m. it will be well placed for viewing. The planets Mars and Saturn can be seen in our evening sky. Mars will be in the north, shining with a red glow. Saturn, also in the north, is a bright yellow star, and is near to the star Spica. Venus will be lost in the evening twilight glare, as it appears to align with the sun for its transit on the 6th of June. We will look at the transit in next month's program. Many thanks for listening to our podcast and we hope you have clear skies and wish you all great observing. Thanks for that, John. Now we move on to the feedback section. And first off, we start with emails. Thank you to Simon Dawes for his feedback, saying he loved the Jodcast. It's always nice to hear. And also thanks to Stephen for pointing out that we put a slightly dubious version of the Jodcast. It was slightly truncated for last month's show, but it was quickly corrected thanks to Stephen's email. And also um, thanks for the excellent Harry Potter reference you put in your email. It made me smile. On the forum, we've had lots of activity. And this goes from general relativity primers to iPhone apps. Um, and it's very great to see all these posts and a lot of people getting in touch with each other and being quite active. So thanks for that, everyone. Junior Edge says on the forum, another great episode, something wonderful about these systems consisting of compact objects spinning down due to gravitational wave energy loss. And Andrew H goes, what a terrible month for the highlights to see in the night sky. Obviously, people in the UK will know it's been very, very cloudy, and unfortunately all that cloud has coincided with the highlights of the month, and as we're not rain gods or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we can't control that to have yes. perfect observing. If only we could. But we wish you better luck for observing the highlights next month. On a similar weather-related note, Paul Harvey says on Facebook, Hi everyone, clear skies tonight for the Lyrids. I am in Wrexham and it's fairly clear. Will it last, I ask myself, and the dog. But no answer from him yet. Yeah, so Paul, if you did see anything, you can get back on Facebook and let us know. Or if your dog started talking, then you can let us know. And on Twitter, thanks to everyone for the follow Fridays and retweets and everything else that's been going on there. 
So if you want to get in touch with the show, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget you can send us real physical posts and the address is on the website. All that remains to do now is thank everyone that was involved. So thanks to J.M. Burtby, Nick Cross, Phil Bull, John Tanner and Dan Brown for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver, John Bender, Leo Hookvale and Christina Smith. And the producer was me, Adam Everson. So until next time, jot on. Bye. Bye. Bye.